Morning, church. Good morning to those of you online. Thanks for listening in or watching. Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. So we continue our study through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been working our way very slowly through the Beatitudes. And as Pastor Wilson just said, we are at the blessing on the peacemakers. Now, one of the things that we've been studying as we've been looking at these Beatitudes is how they build upon each other, how they progress. And uh, recently, I was given a book to borrow, a book called Momentum. It's about the Sermon on the Mount, or it's about the Beatitudes, really, by Colin Smith. And he uses a really helpful analogy in thinking about the progression of the Beatitudes. He invites us to imagine a series of gymnastic rings suspended from the ceiling, okay? And he says, you have to imagine those, and at both ends of the rings is, is a platform, a high platform. And our goal, our mission, should we choose to accept it, is to make our way across the rings, right? So you climb the first platform, you see that first ring, so it then reach, so you gotta grab it, pull back, and then you gotta swing out, and the momentum of it takes you to the next ring, and you grab that, and swing out, and it takes you to the next ring, right? This is all the, you don't actually have to do this because some of you wouldn't make it, right? You'd like fall with that first one to the ground, but the idea is that you, you get the idea from the monkey bars at the playground too, right? Like we swing, and that momentum takes us to the next one, and on through to the end, and the Beatitudes are like those rings, those series of rings peacemaking being the seventh, and there's only one way we can get to that seventh ring, that seventh platform. We have to swing through the rest. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemaking is the seventh ring of the Beatitudes. It's it's their crown, it's their sum total. This is the aim of the Beatitudes. And with just a brief glance at the rest of, of Matthew, if you still got your Bible open, you can just look ahead in Matthew chapter five. Now the theme of peacemaking is just woven through what comes after this. So in verses 21 through 26, uh, Jesus teaches us on controlling anger in our relationships. In verses 27 through 32, kind of taking those two together, we see him teaching on fidelity in marriage. Then in verses 33 through 37, it's integrity in relationships. In verses 38 through 48, it's about not retaliating against our enemies, but instead loving them. And that's all just peacemaking. That's all the work of being a peacemaker. So think about it this way. Jesus' beatitude in verse nine, that's the principle. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then he's gonna elaborate into the rest of the sermon about what peacemaking looks like. Today we're just kind of breaking up the ground and looking at the principle, and then we'll be making our way through a lot of practices as we go. But that means we've got to get our hands around this beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers. We can't advance until we get this. But by saying that, don't hear what I'm not saying. Peacemaking isn't like advanced Christianity. Peacemaking is not like 
an elective. Like, oh, hey, you know what? Like, maybe, I, yeah, I, I, I might take some peacemaking 101. That would be really cool. Like, peacemaking is not an elective in Christianity. It's not optional in Christianity. Uh, it's not like some people are really the peacemakers in our midst. And the rest of us, we're just kind of here hanging out. No, no, no. It's more like evangelism. Some are really gifted at it, but we're all called to it. And peacemaking is the same way. Some are really gifted at it, but we're all called to it. Peacemaking is not optional for Christians. It's, it's essential for Christians. It's Christianity 101. Scripture describes God as a God of peace, and his people are to be characterized by peace. Psalm 34, verse 14 commands us, turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. Likewise, Romans 14, 19, the Apostle Paul writes, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And in Hebrews 12, 14, we're urged to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So peacemaking is not optional, it's, it's essential in Christianity and we are called to, to fight for it, to pursue it. And so this is where we wanna go this morning. We wanna answer three questions as we work through this text. There's three simple questions that we're gonna answer. One, what is a peacemaker? Two, what's a peacemaker like? And three, what is a peacemaker's reward? We're working our way through the text, and the first one we're gonna answer is, what is a peacemaker? All right, so real technically, I'll lay it out for you. A peacemaker is one who makes peace. That's why you guys pay me the big bucks right there, right? So we can all say amen and pray, be done with the day. No, let's break it down a little bit more, okay? So peacemaker, split the word in half. First is peace. Matthew's gospel is a particularly Jewish document. And and so the Old Testament idea of peace just looms large here. What's the Hebrew word for peace? Try again. Shalom, that's right, yes. It's probably one of the best known Hebrew words. It's used as a greeting, it's used as a blessing, it's used as a, as a farewell. It can be translated peace, that's what it's translated most often, but it's really a complex word. Listen to, these are other ways it's translated in the Old Testament. Welfare, safety, prosperity, friendship, well-being, health, perf- or being perfect, being complete, resting as in sleep, soundness, completeness. In fact, here's a really interesting passage I came across this week. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11, David meets Uriah. Do you remember that interesting episode? That scandalous episode? David calls Uriah off the, off the battlefield. He's about to betray him, but he makes some small talk with him first, and David said, how is the war going? 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse seven. How's the war going, he asked Uriah. Literally, David is asking, how is the war shaloming? That's interesting. So what he's asking is, are we faring well in the war? Is it progressing favorably? So this is an interesting use of shalom, and I highlight it to make this important point. The the biblical idea of peace does not necessarily mean the absence of conflict. 
And that's gonna be really important for us to remember. So tuck that to the side and we'll come back to it in just a little bit. But the point here is that peace, the peace Jesus is talking about, isn't just the absence of trouble, it's not just the absence of conflict, but it is the the wholeness and the overall well-being of an individual or a society. Biblical peace is shooting for the wholeness and the overall well-being of a person or society. So that's, that's peace. This word maker, the second word maker, maker is an active word. Maker, is, maker exudes action. There's just not an ounce of passivity in the word maker. It bursts with energy and creativity. It's manufacturing, it's creating. It's just like God who's the maker of heaven and the earth, the maker of everything. So taken together, peacemaker is this dynamic, active taking word, it refers to those who working for, they work for and desire peace, which is not just the absence of trouble, but is the pursuit of wholeness and well-being. Now, in one sense, peacemaking is as broad as the world. I mean, it, it can encompass every conflict. Right, so I mean, wars around the world, civil war in Yemen, persecution of Christians in Nigeria, it's all under the concern of peacemaking. And, and so we can come into the Bible and, and we look at passages and look for, okay, where does it talk about addressing systemic injustices? And where does it talk about kind of world peace and striving for these world pieces? Is, is, because when I look at Jesus, it doesn't seem like he talks about that a whole lot. It it seems like he goes into what we see in Matthew chapter five, controlling our anger and fidelity in marriage and and even serving our enemies. Jesus' focus seems so much more relational, so much more interpersonal. So why doesn't Jesus speak to these bigger, far-reaching issues? That's a fair question. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he say that? We have to acknowledge it's not because he's unaware of these problems, right? It's not like Jesus didn't know about Rome's totalitarian grip on Israel. And it's not like Jesus himself did not suffer under systemic injustices. He did. So it wasn't that he didn't know, but here's what we see about Jesus. Jesus saw the path to societal peace running through relationships. He saw the path to societal peace running through relationships. In other words, the most important front in peacemaking is first your relationships in your family and in your church and in your workplace, in your neighborhood. You start with you and your relationships. And Jesus always had this pattern. I mean, he regularly addressed societal issues just like this. You come to him protesting Caesar's heavy taxations and Jesus turns it into a a warning about your own responsibility to submit to governing authorities. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to to God the things that are God. You come to Jesus complaining about the injustice of your brother who's not dividing inheritance with you and he turns it into a warning about greed and about your own consciousness. He says, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus takes societal issues and he says, yeah, I care about that. Yeah, I understand that, but I'm going to begin with you and your responsibility. 
So peacemaking starts, it takes place when we start with the relationships that Jesus has put us in already. And Martin Luther, the reformer, he went so far as to say that the first front of peacemaking isn't even our blood family, it's our church family. Because the blood of Jesus Christ brings us closer, knits us closer than even family, right? Jesus said that he may divide us between our family at times. Following him can do that. But the church family, this is where peace should be. The Apostle Paul uses two word pictures that helpfully underline and, and illustrate this for us. I want to look at both of them with you briefly. The first is in Colossians 3, verse 15. Paul writes, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Let it rule in your hearts. So how do we, how do we imagine this? How do we picture this? Well, I think the best way to picture this, or one of the better ways to picture this, is that it rules in our hearts like a referee rules on the field. What's a referee do on the field? He blows the whistle on things that are out of bounds, that break the rules, right? And so peace ruling in our hearts is like this, this umpire in our heart, this referee in our heart that says, hey, that desire, out of line with peace. That grumbling and complaining, out of line with shalom. It blows the whistle. <whistles> ah, out, stop. That's not within peace. And don't we need this today? Need I just bring up Mask mandates, vaccination debates, they threaten to divide us. And peace ruling in our hearts looks at the grumbling against each other or the judgments or the fear of man and says, out of line with peace. You can have your convictions, but those desires, those judgments, those preferences, they need to be submitted to peace in the family. So let the peace of Christ rule. The second word pictured Jesus, or Paul uses, is found in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So here Paul envisions peace as a, as a bond. It's a cord that ties us all together. The Puritan John Owen, he uses a helpful illustration with this. He says, imagine a man collecting wood out in, the, out in the forest. He's collecting wood for a fire, and he finds a good supply of branches, but they're all these varied shapes. He has long ones and short ones. He has thick ones and thin ones. He's got straight ones and twisted, gnarly ones, and how's he to carry them all back? Well, he binds them together with a rope so that he can carry them in one bundle. And Owen says, so it is in the church. What a varied bunch of people we are. Some of us are loud. Others of us are quiet. Some of you are old, and some of us are young. 
Some are relational and some are not. Some are funny and some of you are not. Some are charismatic and some of you not. (laughs) Some of you are reformed and some of you not. Some of us are men, some of us are women, some of us are adults, some of us are children. Some of us love the word of God. Some of us love sharing the word of God. Some of us are politically conservative, others of us politically liberal. Some of us are vaccinators, and others of us anti-vaccinators. Some of us are organic, and others of us are name brand. How will Christ carry us all home? He ties us together with the bond of peace. You know what that bond of peace is? It's the mind of Christ, that we consider others' interests more significant than our own. And woe to the person who cuts that cord, who cuts the rope that Christ has tied on this church. So let me ask you, friend, can you honestly say you have faithfully sought the peace of Jesus' church? Are you a peacemaker here? How about in your family? How about at your workplace? How about in your neighborhood? Jesus calls us to make peace. But what's a peacemaker like? That's question number two then this morning, leads us there. What's a peacemaker like? There are lots of ways we can talk about making peace and we will as we work through Jesus' sermon here, but what is a peacemaker like? What's some of the ways that we can dive into this a little bit? I defined a peacemaker as someone who works for and desires peace, which is not just the absence of trouble and conflict, but is aiming at the wholeness and the well-being of another. So that sounds good, but what's a peacemaker like? Well. I think the first place we have to go is a peacemaker must have all the other beatitudes under his belt. What's a peacemaker like? He must have all the other beatitudes under his belt. Now, I don't mean you've got them perfected, like, oh yeah, poverty of spirit, got that down in 2007, no problem now. Like, it's not perfecting them, but it's actively practicing them. It's actively being them and being under them, washing yourself in them. Remember the analogy of the gymnastics rings. You've gotta get the momentum of one to the next, to the next, to the next. So peacemakers have experienced poverty of spirit. They have come before God empty-handed looking to Jesus alone for their supply. Peacemakers have seen their own sins and have wept over them. And they've let this humble them so that they could admit their mistakes and own up to their weaknesses with meekness. All this has produced in them a a deep desire, a hunger, and a thirst for righteousness. And when this happens, they become more merciful. They're they're compassionate. They're compelled out in mercy towards others. And, And through this, worldliness is stripped away from them as their heart is purified and they become more and more single minded for God. And and all of that propels them to go with the energy of God, the will and passion of God, to make peace as God is peace. 
So this is so important. Don't lose sight of peacemaking follows after all the other beatitudes. And so if we need to grow in peacemaking, we need to be washed afresh in the beatitudes. We need to go back and start swinging from the first one. So, a peacemaker's got the Beatitudes under his belt. Second one, I've got four of these. Second one, a peacemaker must see things for how they really are. Do you get that about a peacemaker? He's got, he's got to see things for how they really are. And I'm venturing out of the Sermon of the Mount here. I want to go to Ezekiel chapter 13. Ezekiel chapter 13, where the prophet condemns false prophets who say, you remember this? Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And in his typical manner, Ezekiel uses the illustration. He says, it's like you see a wall that's about to fall down, and it's, it's filled with cracks all over it. But, but these false prophets are like people who come along and just kind of plaster over the wall to hide the cracks. He says, but when trouble comes, you'll see what's really there. The prophet Jeremiah, he picks up on the same thing, but he gives it a different slant. He says, They have healed the wound of my people only slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So Jeremiah says, they're like someone who heals the outer layer of skin, but ignores the infection that's festering inside. They only heal it slightly by pretending there's peace. They're peace fakers, saying there's peace when there's no peace, instead of peacemakers. A peacemaker doesn't do this. A peacemaker is painfully honest about offenses. A peacemaker is painfully honest about divisions. A peacemaker is painfully honest about the things that separate us. And a peacemaker refuses to to say peace, peace when there is no peace. He'll acknowledge the infection. He'll own up to the cracks in the wall. So evaluate yourself on this one. Are you fundamentally honest about what you see in relationships, in your relationships? Or do you like to put a little putty over the cracks and pretend they're not there? You don't really like to see those things. You'd rather not rock the boat. And I'm just gonna venture out here on a limb, although I think it's a pretty sturdy limb for me to stand on. Uh, Guys, I think this is a particular temptation for us. We love peace so much that we'd rather not upset peace. Because we like to sit down and watch our show or read our book or do our hobby, and so we don't want to have the hard talk. But a peacemaker sees it and speaks about it. In Ronald Reagan's farewell address as president, he spoke to about our thawing relationships with Russia. And he said, I want this new closeness to continue. But then he gave a warning, and it's one of my favorite leadership lines. I use it with the guys on the leadership team all the time. He said, okay, I want this new relationship with Russia to continue, that would be great, but don't be afraid to see what you see. In other words, don't want peace with with Russia so bad that you'll just kind of sweep some things under the rug because you just really want it to work out. No, don't be afraid to see what you see. That's a peacemaker. Peacemakers do that. 
They're not afraid to see what they see and to speak up about it. This leads us to the third one then, a peacemaker. A peacemaker is a fighter. Now that may surprise us if a peacemaker is a fighter. We don't think about, when you think about peacemaking, we tend to think of someone who, you know, is not contentious, but a peacemaker is a fighter. Now I'm not saying that all fighters are peacemakers, but I am saying that all peacemakers are fighters. Remember the word maker. It's an active word. There's nothing passive about it. And remember Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace. Words there is for, you know, to reach or strive to fight for it. And also there's Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So peacemaking is this active work that we have to do. It's to be pursued and to be fought for. So a peacemaker practices what you might call gracious aggression. I wonder if you know anyone like this. Someone who's a fighter, but they're fighting for peace. Maybe you have a spouse like this. I have a spouse like this. My wife fights for peace. And it took me a while to see what a rich blessing that is for our family and for our marriage, which we just celebrated 15 years this past week. Yeah, that's right, yes. And I'm so thankful because my wife has made us a better marriage and has made this church a better church because she fights for peace. Do you have a spouse that fights for peace? Do you have a boss that fights for peace? Maybe you've never seen this as a virtue before, but fighting for peace is glorious. Commenting on what a peacemaker is like, William Barclay wrote, there is many a person who thinks that he is loving peace when in fact he is piling up trouble for the future because he refuses to face the situation and to take the action which the situation demands. The peace which the Bible calls blessed does not come from the evasion of issues, it comes from facing them, dealing with them, and conquering them. What this beatitude demands is not the passive acceptance of things before or because we are afraid of the trouble of doing anything about them, but the active facing of things and the making of peace. I like this line, even when the way to peace is through struggle. So again, I invite you to evaluate yourself under this one. How well do you fight for peace? Do you evade issues or do you face them and deal with them, seeking to conquer them in love? Do you fight for peace? Even if it's through a way of struggle. Well, then fourth and finally, I've got to round out peace as a, a peacemaker, as a fighter. I need to round that out a little bit, right? Because some people could hear that and say like, okay, well, I've got a license to kill then. Like he just said, peacemaker. Like, honey, there's some things I've been wanting to talk to you about. Like, listen up here. He said I was allowed to fight. Well, yes, you're allowed to fight, but a peacemaker is also peaceable. Peacemaker is also peaceable, and I, I drive that, draw that from James 3, 17 and 18, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. 
And then he expands on that. It's gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So again, evaluate yourself. Are, are you peaceable as you work to resolve conflict? With your spouse, with your kids, are you gentle, open to reason, compassionate, impartial in your consideration? Are you sincere? Meaning you're really pursuing an interest in their interest and not just to get them to serve your interest or to prove that you're right. Are you sincere in your pursuit of peace? All right, well, those are snapshots of what a peacemaker is like. Let's turn finally in conclusion to what is a peacemaker's reward. Third point, what is a peacemaker's reward? The reward is that, Jesus says, they will be called sons of gods. Peacemakers will be recognized as the children of God, meaning will be known as chips off the old block. Will be known as, or Jesus is essentially saying, like father, like sons. Listen, we know from Scripture that God is the Lord of peace. We read that over and over and over again in the Bible. He is the God of all peace in in the Old Testament. Yahweh Shalom. He is perfect peace. Now, think with me about this for a minute, okay? We're gonna gonna go a little deep theologically here on this point so that we can can aim towards uh, a point we wanna make here in a minute. God is peace. That he is peace means... Before he created anything, so let me just invite you to look back with me into eternity past. It's over here, if you didn't know that. Look back into eternity past as far as you can. Eternity stretches on. It never ends. And all through eternity past is God existing in Trinitarian shalom perfect peace, no contention, no jealousy, no selfish ambition, no bickering, no fighting of the wills, Trinitarian shalom. Now, at some point, God creates everything, like like a star bursting into life. He speaks everything into existence, right? And almost as soon as he does that, almost immediately, the fall happens. And conflict erupts in God's creation. It erupts in time. It eru- it, conflict is here. Now, I want to show you something about that. Think about it this way. In all eternity, stretching back for eternity, or yeah, all eternity stretching back for eternity, I guess that works. Eternity stretches on forever. So all eternity in the past, all eternity for all time. We have known since the fall, conflict here. Conflict with each other, conflict with God. For all these ages in humanity, we have known that. But in the expanse of time, eternity, this little conflict-ridden existence that we know is just a blip. It's just a in God's existence. It's just a, that's just, that's, that's not just us, that's all existence on this world. That's it, in God's, 
Does that help if I make that noise? Does Mike get that? Do you get that? There you go. That's all we are. I was telling my kids about this a little bit last night, and I said, it's, it's like an ant farm. That's how I think about it. It's like an ant farm, right? Like you have an ant farm, it's this little box, little plastic thing so you can see the ants working and they're just living their life and they're, oh, the manna's dropped down, it's great, let's take it down to our sand and they're making their little, and to them it's their world. And they can't imagine this existence outside of that little box. And that's us to God. Like we live this conflict-ridden life Conflict with God, conflict with each other. But it's just this little thing, and God's just, God's just shalom all around it. Perfect peace. There. So I'm, I'm saying all this to bring us to this point, okay? Here, here's where I'm driving all this. What? Saying, okay, Jace, maybe that's a little interesting to me, but like, where are you going with this? Here's where I'm going with this, right? We have this existence, this little blip in God's world, but it's still an existence where we have strife with God and strife with each other. And then, and then comes Isaiah 28, verse 21, where it's speaking about how our sin has roused God to anger and he is moving to make war on evil and the evildoers. And it describes this as his unusual work. Isn't that interesting? God makes war on evil and it's his unusual work or it's his alien work. Why is it unusual? Why is it alien? Because for eternity he is perfect shalom. And in this little blip of our existence, we draw the Almighty into conflict. But God is the God of peace. So he's drawn into conflict with us, but this conflict must end with him winning peace. Not just beating us, but winning peace with us. Somehow in God, it must be reconciled so that we who are at war with him can be at peace with him. How will God do this? How will God be the peacemaker? And thus we get God sending Jesus Christ, his only son, the prince of peace, sent on a peace mission, right? So 2 Corinthians 5, 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Or Colossians 1, 19 through 20, we'll look at this on the overhead. For in him, being Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace the only other time that word peacemaker is used in the bible is right there except here it's in firm form making peace by the blood of his cross what happens because of that? Because Jesus bore that wrath. Verses 21 to 22, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, enemies with God, at war with him, doing your evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you homely and blameless and above reproach for him. So here we are, all of us, by nature, all we know in this existence is we are rebels against God. We deserve to be eternally condemned. We're in rebellion, 
each of us living our own way. We're in rebellion in these little pockets all over the world. We're just fighting God. I'll do what I want. But then over the short waves of the radio comes this announcement that we all tune in and hear absolute amnesty is offered to all who will lay down their arms of independence and through Jesus Christ accept peace with God. Come home to Yahweh Shalom. And God is one in peace. This is the unbelievable good news of the gospel. God is a peace-loving God, and he is a peace-making God, and God's children have his character. So that what he loves, we love, and what he pursues, we pursue, and what he sacrifices his life for, we sacrifice our life for. Peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So in conclusion, I want to ask you, will you be called a son of God? Looking over your life, if you're not a true peacemaker, but are more aptly described as a troublemaker or a peace faker, If you're a troublemaker or a peace faker, there is a real chance, even a likelihood, that you are not a Christian, that you are not a child of God. If your character is such that you spread rumors or gossip, if you are constantly fomenting with malcontent, if you enjoy scandal, if you avoid conflict, if you are omnicritical, always fault-finding, if you are argumentative, if you are just plain mean, if these things characterize your life, you need to take an honest look at yourself and determine if you are really a child of God. Because if you are, you have peace, and you have peace to give. Now, I'm not talking about if you fall into these things every now and again. If you loathe your critical spirit, if you loathe your conflict avoidance, that's a sign of grace, and blessed are those who mourn. But my point is, is you can't give what you don't have. To be a peacemaker, you have got to have the peace of God. And so I'm asking, have you experienced that? If you have, then my question to you is, have you retreated from it? Have you pulled back? If so, the only response you have is to go back to Beatitude 1, get on your face before God and ask for peace. Come in poverty of spirit, repent of your troublemaking or peace faking and ask Yahweh Shalom for peace and that he would send you out to make peace. Covenant Grace, God's been working in us. Many have been talking about this 
fresh hunger and thirsting they have after righteousness, which is awesome, but remember, James 3.18, we looked at earlier, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is our calling, to make peace. And God is sending us out of here today into homes that are ripe for conflict with husbands who are peace fakers and wives who are peace breakers and children who are troublemakers. God is going to, <laughs> I had some kids after the first service came up and said, hey, you called me a troublemaker. And I said, I did, that's right. I'm glad you were listening. So then we talked about Jesus for a minute. But we are, that's what we're going back into. And God is sending us out this week into workplaces and neighborhoods that are filled with conflict. And in just a few minutes, God's gonna send you out into fellowship with a church of people that are wildly different than you are. What are we gonna do? Let's make peace. Let's work for the shalom of God to invade our church and our family and our neighborhoods and our workplaces. Let's work for peace. But first, let's go to God and ask him for help. Will you pray with me? Well, Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word, God, for your word reveals you. We live such conflicting lives, God. It's hard to imagine an existence of pure peace. But you are peace, and in Luke, I think it's maybe chapter 12, Jesus says heaven is a, is a kingdom of peace. It's a place of peace. It's a world of peace. So Lord, we, wanna, we, want, we want, we're praying right now what you taught us to pray. God, uh, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want peace to reign here. We want this church to be a place of peace and we want our homes to be places of peace. And we wanna take peace out into this world. And so God, we, we pray for your help to do that, Lord. Where there's fallow ground, Lord, we pray you'd, you'd plow it up in our hearts, Lord. Help us to get on our face and come empty-handed before you. But find that when we do drink of the well of your water, oh, our cup overflows. And out of us springs wells of living water ourselves. We get peace and we get to give it away because you have so much peace to give. So God, help us to keep drawing from the well of your peace this week and help us make peace. We ask in Jesus' name.